and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone, even you, because we've all been kids. Even the Trunchbull. Even the Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode, we review one picture book and one chapter book. We started off way back when with books that we read as kids, but if you've got a book you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please, we'd love you to get in touch. You can email us on eventheTrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod and on Instagram, we are at eventheTrunchbull. And we're now popping in for a second time this December your lucky things, for our Christmas special. Yay! Yay! So we've got um, two Christmas-themed books. Our um, picture book is going to be Mog's Christmas. I think the Mog stories are one that we've been had on the list right from the beginning. Um, childhood favourite of yours, Nina, eh? Yes. I love Judith Kerr, and this is a very good Mog story. Our chapter book is The Vanderbeekers of 141st Street by Karina Jan Glazer. Was this one new to you, Nina? Yeah, it's a much more recent book. These are still coming out. I think the fifth one came out just this year. Let's do the synopsis and Matt's going to tell us the story. Yeah, all right. So we've got five siblings who live in Harlem in a brownstone, which I guess is like a type of terraced townhouse. Yeah. So it's a story, I guess, about community Mm -hmm. and preserving community ties. This is a family who are linked intrinsically into the community they're in. And they've been living there for a few years. Uh, The older siblings are 12. So we have Jesse and Issa. Twins. Twins again. So we've got, yeah, we've got (laughs) another set of twins. And then we've got Oliver, who's... About nine, and then Hyacinth, who's kind of seven or eight, yeah. and Lainey, who is four and three quarters, very specifically. <laughs> and so, yeah, they're, they're coming up towards Christmas, and their parents say that they've got some difficult news. They are basically being kicked out of their house. Their landlord, who lives on the top floor, isn't renewing their lease. So they're going to have to find somewhere else to live in the new year. And the kids then call an emergency meeting on the roof, which is their hangout spot, and decide that they're going to implement Operation Beaterman. Beaterman. Yeah, that being the name of the landlord. Yeah. Various plans are suggested, including kind of bullying him or holding him ransom or something by Oliver. <laughs> um, but they decide they're going to be nice to him, so they're going to have lots of different it's a charm offensive. Do. Yeah, they're going to be nice to him, so they're going to buy him breakfast from the local bakery, which does like amazing pastries, and they sort of draw him pictures and make him mixtapes, and and it all just goes wrong. Yeah, and everything they do just seems to aggravate him more. Yeah, 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 and with good reason, because they set out with the best intentions, but then like they take the breakfast on a tray up to his door, knock on the door, and then... She like slips and drops the tray and runs away. So it just looks like a sort of like hate attack. He's a described as fairly agoraphobic, very grumpy man. And it's clear that something's going on for him. He's sort of more and more keen to get them out of the building as quickly as possible. And that's probably probably about as far as we'll we'll take you. It becomes a bit of a story about like the real baddie in it is gentrification right yeah personified in mr biederman for this story and biederman's in a kind of a screwed role if we like bring it back to the christmas special we did last year in this sort of archetype of this cold-hearted single man living alone it's almost like you're getting scrooge entirely from bob cratchit's point of view yeah well and he's literally a landlord which a lot of adaptations make him a landlord i think in the original he's a moneylender but it's yeah. those parasitic, capitalistic <laughs> jobs. <laughs> Nina hates landlords. I do hate landlords. <laughs> With good reason. But yeah, it's kind of that instability of capitalism. And like, because mm. the dad works 
as a superintendent in the building. So when they're looking for new places, part of the struggle is like, well, I have to find somewhere in a new building that also needs a superintendent. Well, and that those positions don't exist anymore because the maintenance and repair and cleaning of buildings is now largely outsourced to big companies. It's not a little job that's available for a discounted rent to one resident anymore. Yeah. So that's the story. And then it's just the the style of it is um, very cute. They're a very great, really cute set of kids. They're so believable and well-realised as well, which is an achievement. Five child characters within one story, all of whom feel three-dimensional and fleshed out and real. They've all got really clear arcs, like even the four-year-olds. Yeah. Do you want to take us through the, the kids then, Nina? Yeah. So we've got the older two, the twin girls, Jessie and Issa. And Issa feels like the true elder child, the really responsible type A perfectionist. She's a brilliant violin player. She's very creative and she's very dutiful. And you've got her twin, Jessie, who's equally brilliant, but in a completely different direction. She's very scientific. She's very into physics. She's really into building things and engineering. She's a mad scientist, isn't she? She's not at all interested in popularity contests or school politics or all of this. I think when they're first coming up with plans for what to do about the Biederman, she's citing Newton's third yeah. law, <laughs> saying that... No action without an equal opposite reaction. Yeah, and she's saying this doesn't make any logical sense because Dad contributes so much to the community and we always do and this is not a, this is not a valid response. It's just such a great way of like... And next one is the boy child, Oliver, and he's... More willing to be mean than any of his sisters. And his arc is all about selfishness. Yeah. Which I really like, that he comes from this family of really nice people, and he just struggles a little bit more than they do to be nice. Yeah. (laughs) He has to work at it, doesn't he? Yeah. And, like, everybody's on board for supporting him to work at it as well, which is lovely. Like... His mum always makes cookies for everybody on the street and makes Oliver distribute them. And he's like, oh, mum, do I have to? And she's like, yes, every year I'm going to make you go around and smile at people. Yeah, and he's like, I don't mind walking around. It's just the fact that I have to like sit and listen to people about their boring lives. And she's like, yeah, that's the point, honey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's Oliver. Um, and then Hyacinth, who is my absolute favourite. I think it's not clear how old she is. She's six or seven, I think. Despite being second to last in the Van der Beeker family line, Hyacinth often felt she was the true middle child. Of course, Oliver had earned that right being born between two sets of sisters, but he had the honour of being the only boy, which held him apart. The twins were exactly the same age, so in Hyacinth's mind they sort of counted as one. And if you didn't include Oliver because he was a boy, that left Hyacinth taking the true middle spot, Fending for herself in a household of loud, strong-willed, attention-grabbing siblings. I just love that, like her own little self-concept of like, I understand yeah. that I am not numerically in the middle, but if we do these two little like jiggles to the data, yeah. <laughs> if we just exclude what is inconvenient, I am though. Yeah. Oh, I just love that because I'm not a middle child, I'm an oldest child, but I think I have a similar relationship to my siblings. Mm. In that, like, both of my siblings are louder than me, yeah. more outgoing than me, um, and more confident than me. Uh, I think disability plays into this a lot, in that like I'm not in a traditional eldest child role, and you might say that my middle sister is almost that. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, like, because I guess developmentally, socially, I was behind her. She took on a lot of that, like older sibling stuff yeah and i'm um i it's sad like i used to think of myself as the dud as the first pancake out of the pan you know that's always the <laughs> dog like the, first, the first attempt at a child that my parents made was like, oh something happened to this one i think you're being slightly <laughs> unfair on yourself but <laughs> i i know and i don't entirely think that now but i that's still sort of like i feel very clear on what everybody else in my family is about you know yeah I'm sort of, I feel a little bit like I'm the lesser sibling, like the sibling that hasn't got like a really sparky thing about them. Um, so I really related to Hyacinth on that, on that, on those grounds. 
she finds other people really difficult. Yeah. She finds the idea of somebody disliking her really, really hard. Yeah. Like, she's the one that really suffers from believing that Mr. Biederman upstairs dislikes her. Like, she's the one that's like, why does Mr. Biederman hate us so much? Like, it feels so personal to her. And she's really into crafts, and she's so thoughtful. She's always making people presents. She can knit, yeah. she can sew, she can do collage. She's, like, excellent at all these crafts, and she's got these little collections of buttons and ribbons and like little bits and i yeah. really relate to her on that level as well i'm like that as well um and then there's laney who is four and three quarters and yeah. laney is another one that's super sociable super comfortable likes herself and likes other people in many ways laney's the baby um everybody loves her yeah she's really cute she's really unselfconscious and loving yeah so that's the kids and we should introduce the brownstone as well, because the brownstone, yeah. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but the brownstone, the building really is a personality in this yeah. book. I've got a little excerpt to read about the brownstone. Although all the brownstones on the narrow tree-lined street were the same size, each one had its own personality. One brownstone was rotund, like a jolly, well-fed grandfather with a curved façade and decorative curlicues above round, owlish windows. A few skips down stood a perfectly symmetrical brownstone, with a more regal disposition, which stood in direct contrast to its frivolous neighbour, a brownstone with flashy turrets and multicoloured shingles that sparkled on sunny days. And that's the amount of love that's given to mm. like the description of architecture in this, and often it mentions, oh, the... The radiator pipes rumbled amicably behind them. Yeah, it's personified throughout, isn't it? Yeah. And I just love it because then it becomes like the main protagonist of the story becomes the building and it becomes yeah. about place. It's about community and it's about people, but it's about like the permanence beyond that as well. Mm -hmm. So it's like these buildings and places are the constant. They're always there. And then it's the people that are fleeting, but make them what they are as they sort yeah. of pass through and... Like, it gives it that sense of, like, lived history, which is really lovely. Yeah. And this love of New York comes through as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, the Vanderbeekers really love living here. Um, did you look at the map at the beginning? No, because I was on an audiobook. Okay. I'll talk a little bit about the illustrations. And the illustrations are interesting because Karina Yang Glazer made the deliberate decision not to explicitly racialize her main characters. So she says they're a biracial family and she describes certain physical characteristics like one person had curly hair and one person had brown eyes. It never specifically says which of their parents is which race, does it? Well, or which two races it is. Yeah, true. So in response to that, the illustrations have never depicted any of the characters. So what they do right. depict, there's a map at the beginning of just their area of New York with all of their landmarks on it. So Castleman's Bakery yeah. and, you know, like the Christmas tree stand and Oliver's Basketball Court. And then there's a lot of drawings of the building, of um, the brownstone and of Jessie's inventions. There's like diagrams of how Jessie's inventions all work. So her water wall and her a lemon-powered light bulb yeah. <laughs> that she makes. It's it's all um, drawings of inanimate things, which I quite like and I find quite interesting. That is really interesting. Shall we talk about Miss Josie and Mr. Jeet? Yeah. So they're their upstairs neighbours. Yeah. So also tenants of Mr. Biederman. And they're this sort of older couple who the family have known since they moved in. So Mr. Jeet, in the last few years, has had a stroke. Yeah. And... He's different to the way he used to be. Um, yeah. He speaks more slowly and he moves more slowly. And certain yeah. things are harder for him. Jesse, Issa and Oliver remember him giving them piggyback rides and, you know, like playing with them in a really yeah. active way. But Lainey doesn't remember what he was like before. And she's just got this completely different relationship with him. I think because of that, because she's not doing a before and after and she's not doing a, you know, slightly mourning who he was before. She is in complete acceptance of his disabled self, I suppose you could say. Yeah. You know, and she likes that he speaks slowly. Yeah. 
and that he takes the time to listen and that he can understand what she says because she's still a little bit baby talking, I think. Yeah, he doesn't do that awful thing that most adults do of pretending to listen and then looking up to one of the adults or older siblings to get a translation. Yeah. Like he just knows what she said. Yeah. So Lainey's always popping upstairs to see Miss Josie and Mr Jeet and she brings her rabbit Paganini with her. Hmm. Um, Paganini being a reference to that song by Ella Fitzgerald. Miss Josie and Mr Jeet really love jazz. And Laney likes jazz. And apparently Mr. Biederman used to listen to a lot of jazz, but now he doesn't. And that's one yeah. of the clues as to why he is the way he is. Yeah. Music's quite a big theme through this. So you've got Issa, who plays sort of classical music on mm. a violin. And then you've got Mr. Jeet and Miss Josie, who play jazz. And it just seems to be quite important to their whole building. But mm. then it's really important to Mr. Biederman that they be quiet. So mm. there's this tension all the time between like these people who are loving life and mm. loving sound and music and listening and Mr. Biederman is like, I just need you all. I need you all to be quiet. Such a tension between like wanting to be a loud, rambunctious family and wanting to be considerate of this person's needs who also just happens to be able to pull your house out from under you. That need is the right word as well. I mean, like, I think we won't spoil it. I guess it's that Scrooge thing again of, like, there are always reasons why someone is the way they are, right? Yeah. And also people can change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would talk about it with Mr. Biederman almost in terms of, if we're coming back to disability views of this, it's almost an access need. They think he's just annoyed at them. And mm. he's just grumpy. And they <laughs> they make up a lot of stories for themselves about why he is the way he is. Oh, is he on the run from the law? Oh, is he yeah. in, the, in the witness protection program? It's none of these things. But there is a reason that he is the way he is. What I like about it is so it holds this where it doesn't ultimately come down on the side of this particular landlord is an evil man, right? Yeah. But it does come down on the side of gentrification is evil. And yeah. somebody having the power to kick you out of your home is evil. And I think it holds that really well, both of those things. Like, so where I lived before, I had a neighbour who took against me for reasons I will never know. Um, I would, mm. We were living on the same street, and so I walked past her house every day. And every day, she banged on the window with her fist and shouted at me to go away. Wow. This started four years into us being neighbours. So I have no idea what I did. And it it was really upsetting me. Like it was really getting to me. And like I yeah. I tried to come up with, you know, maybe she doesn't like dogs, I've got a dog. Maybe she just really doesn't like my face. I will never find out what it was, and we can come up with all sorts of, you know, compassionate reasons why she was that way, but the point is that she wasn't able to get me kicked out of my house. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we were both renting from the housing association, and yeah. whatever her good or bad reasons for disliking me, like she wasn't actually able to affect my housing security. Yeah. And that is yeah, the case yeah. for not having private landlords, you know. But I think what it does as well, like by the end of the book, it's really good at painting this picture of like Mister Biederman, the landlord, is as trapped by that set up in that social yeah. situation yeah. in a lot of ways like it's not the same consequences but it's that whole it's these whole structures mm. that everyone is living within is trapped by he just rings up and he's like there's someone coming round to view the place on on christmas eve like you should be out of the house and i want you gone definitely by new year and the mum is trying to reason with him on the phone and then comes off the phone like close to tears yeah. And the dad's like, is that even legal? And she's like, it's in our lease. We signed off on it. Yeah. And it's that thing again of like that just sort of passionless bureaucracy. It's so dehumanising. And there's another bit that picks up on it that I wanted to talk about that with the university. Yes. <laughs> so just this general theme of like the adult world is crap. Yeah. So <laughs> the college is this like fairy tale castle structure. And Lainey's fascinated with it. And basically they figure out that the Biederman used to be an art history professor. 
So they decide they're going to go on a reconnaissance trip to the college to find out if anyone knew him and they can find out more information. And they get there and it's right at the end of Christmas term. They walk in and there's like a student in pyjamas who's like, oh, it's that way. <laughs> and they get up to the office and there's just one woman in there who's like fiercely tapping away on a computer and they come in and they're like, hi, we wanted to ask a question. And she's like, just leave it in the tray. You've got 10 minutes. Yeah. And they're like, no, 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 we we just had a question. We're not actually from the... And she's like, you're literally about to fail your assignment. Leave it in the tray. <laughs> and then she looks up and she's like, well, children aren't supposed to be in here. What are you doing? And they're like, no, 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 we just had a question. They're sort of asking about the beadman. And she's like, nope, never heard of him. Is there anyone else who might do? Yeah, there might be, but everyone else has already left. So you'll have to come back January 15th or later, which is like obviously way too late. So yeah. honestly, it's that thing of like, academia's got it like working in the arts industry as well you've got it of like these periods of the year where it's like that thing of like if you send an email too late on friday it's not going to get picked up till monday if you send an email on like december 20th it's not going to get picked up till february (laughs) it's just like nope sorry shut now and then as they're chatting this student like comes barreling up the corridor like wait 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 i've got it i've got it and like gets her and she's like dying out of breath like i've got my assignment and the woman just like goes sorry you're late and they look at the clock the kids look at the clock and it says 10 one she's like everyone get out of my office my christmas holiday started a minute ago and i'm already tired of this and then to be fair to her she gets outside and she's like and the student the is crying saying she's going to lose yeah. her scholarship if she fails this course and they get outside and this woman's like right you kids sorry can't help you come back on the 15th and then she takes the assignment off the young girl and's like, don't be late next time. Yeah. And she's like, oh my God, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> the Van der Beekers shook their heads in wonder. College was looking more and more like a place where dreams came to die. <laughs> like, how well on the nose can you get? It's spot on, isn't it? Yeah. It's absolutely spot on. Because, like, I don't know. Like, I'm speaking for a lot of people, but I feel like most people who've been at university have had that experience mm-hmm. of like this was sold to me as like this dreaming spires like world of wonder me too. and it's just i'm just learning how to deal with an awful bureaucratic world and it's so good oh. coming from these five brilliant children who come yeah. from a background that's middle class enough that probably they all expect to go to college or at least yeah. that would be the norm for them yeah. And you know they're 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 bright they're, they're they're fairly academic all of them it seems like and they're like nah this <laughs> this does not seem like the place where you come to do all your amazing learning this seems like the place where dreams come to die because it's from the point of view of kids you can talk about the adult world with this kind of clarity that an adult book wouldn't yeah. be able to do because there's just this innocence like. You can show how really alienating it is. It's like, why wouldn't you help us do this thing? Yeah. Why would you throw us out of our house? But then within that, it's just the the warmth of community as well. It's it's a really interesting book. Yeah. It's a really interesting book. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in lots of ways, it feels very classic for a Christmas time book. It's a big bubbling family. Everybody loves each other. But also it feels extremely modern in that it's a critique of gentrification. Also, I wanted to talk about the way that phones are used. Mobile phones and the internet are just little parts of this world that make it not, you know, a 19th century Dickensian situation. Because a lot of children's books are coming from authors who are our age or one or two generations older than us that are having this really reactionary reaction to mobile phones. Like, Mm. it's really like, oh, mobile phones are ruining the youth and they're all stuck to their mobile phones and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, And I like the way that they're just integrated into this family's life. So they they have some sort of policy. And none of these children have phones yet. Mm. Oliver, who is nine, really wants a phone. And his mum says, not yet. Um, But, like, the mum hands Jesse her mobile phone to show her some recipes she's looked up. And there's a lovely bit where the kids are bringing their parents breakfast in bed. Mm. And both parents are doing a thing on their phone. Mm. And that's so real. 
That mm. is what people do when they're sitting up in bed waiting for something to happen in the morning. You do yeah. sit up in bed and check your phone first thing, you know, and the dad's, like, reviewing work tickets for his computer repair job and mum's doing, yeah. don't know, something else. But, like, it's not... There's no judgment to it. It's not like, and the parents were ignoring their kids. You know, it's just like, oh, this is what they were doing. And then they put down their phones and they ate the Castleman's pastries and they paid attention to their children. It's the bit as well when uh, Oliver's, like, pushing his mum, being like, oh, it'd be a lot easier if I had a phone. She's like, no, I didn't have a phone till after college. I was fine. And he's like, yeah, but they weren't invented then. Yeah, you were in the olden <laughs> days, mum. <laughs> I like that. Talking about favourite characters. Is Oliver yours, then? Well, it's tri- it's really tricky. I'm kind of torn between two. Special mention goes to Oliver because he's he loves his sport. He lo- you know he's that selfishness arc you were talking about. Yeah. Like he is the center of the world. His immediate response to anything is, "Shall I kick his door in?" Um, <laughs> <laughs> but then he's big into reading. He's got like a little box room. It was a walk-in closet. Yeah, my first childhood bedroom was this. So you've just got like a single high bed and then like a chair and a desk underneath. Yeah. But his uncle has put up like shelves on every available bit of wall space and sends him new books all the time. So he's big into Treasure Island. um, And there's a lovely bit early on where he's getting called for tea. And he's so engrossed that he has to take a second to remember that he's not a pirate. Yeah. Um, like he's, And I just remember that as a kid being like so into books that it's like, oh, yeah, no, we're back in this world now. He's into poetry and it's not like this doesn't come up till like way later in the book, but he writes the Biederman a haiku as his nice yeah. thing. And his, one of his sisters is like, mm, you're going to write him a poem. And he's like, shut up, man. Poetry's cool. Yeah. And I was like, yes, Oliver, son. Like, <laughs> yes, yes, mate. And I just love that just slipping in there like... From the author as well, I guess. Just like, yeah, poetry's cool. Poetry's a thing that pre-teenage boys can like. Yeah. Like. The sort of toxic masculinity stuff comes much more from the men in this book than from Oliver. Their dad is a lovely character. But when he catches wind of the idea that one of his 12-year-old daughters might have a crush on a boy, he's immediately like, our daughters aren't allowed to date until after college, are they? And mum sort of like brushes it off like, oh, shut up. But like, I think he believes that. He doesn't say our children. He says our daughters aren't allowed to date. I was almost glad of that. Like it's, it's wildly problematic, but it's the only bit of the dad that isn't perfect dad. Yeah. Because he's just too entirely wholesome. And then there's just that one little snippet of like, oh, okay, you're a bit like that. Yeah. Right. You're going to be the sort of, like, first boyfriend coming around, like, standing with his arms folded, like, don't touch her. Have you seen these prom photos from the US where, like, the daughter and the boyfriend or the boy that she's going to the dance with are standing together and then the dad is standing near the boy in a threatening pose? Yeah. And it's sort of supposed to be, like, a cute photo op, like, ah, lol. Like, dad's protective of his daughter. I think it's really toxic and horrible. Yeah. But I think it's, like considered cute so speaking of uh male behavior that's on the line between toxic and cute oliver's hate mail yay <laughs> <laughs> so oliver has a really good reason to do this and a yeah. really sweet reason to do this which is after one of their joint efforts to charm mr biederman hyacinth decides to have a go on her own and she crafts him something and brings it up to him And then he opens the door and shouts at her, stop bringing crap up to my landing. Like, really shouts at her, really frightens her. What did she say he looks like? A werewolf. A werewolf, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So she's really frightened. And she comes down and she's crying and crying and crying and crying. And Oliver, who we've said, Oliver has problems with selfishness. Oliver just wants to read his book in peace, but you can hear Hyacinth, like, sobbing her heart out. So he goes and he asks her what's wrong and he sits in her bed with her and listens to her and then he even spends 20 minutes looking at her button collection until she feels better even though he finds this mind-numbingly boring yeah and then he's like right i'm taking revenge upon the biederman i'm going to send him some hate mail (laughs) 
Yeah, so... Do you want to talk about it and I'll try and find the excerpt in the book? <laughs> yeah, he basically, inspired by Treasure Island, is like, right, this'll show him. And he writes this letter. Yeah, if you've got the wording of the letter, that'd be great. But basically he puts like a black spot on him. Go on, yeah, let's have it. To the scoundrel on the third floor, I hope your conscience has robbed you of sleep. Being mean will earn you a black spot, and you know what that means. Be nice or watch out. Woe be to the man who does not heed my advice. Signed, your greatest foe. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, he starts to um, think like, oh, maybe this is a bit much. And then he's like, oh, well, how would he know it was me writing anyway? It could be anyone. <laughs> I've got really good handwriting for a nine-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Oliver, mate, and stuff's just starting to go well, and it's like you watched him doing it, like, oh, this is not cool, Oliver, honey. And then he doesn't tell any of his sisters. He's no, like, mm. and then you know they have subsequent meetings about how Operation Biederman yeah, is going, and, and like... Oliver manages to never mention that he's done that. <laughs> like archaic pirate language, but. A directly threatening hate letter. Yeah. So that's that's my special mention. My other favourite character is Jessie. Yeah. The sort of B story of the book is Jessie doing something she really shouldn't do, which is the the young lad from the local bakery from Castleman's wants to ask Issa to the, the, the eighth grade prom. Yeah. Nisa and Jessie are 7th grade, so she's like, oh, she's too young, she can't. And he's like, oh, she could if she went with me. Like, do you think she'd want that? And Jessie's just like, ah, no, definitely not. Sorry, but no. And then it becomes this whole thing, because the lad thinks that that comes directly from Issa, and he's been really cool to her, and it's just like, it builds up for ages, and Jessie's sort of like, keeps thinking, like, there's moments to tell Issa she's done this, but then just bottles it and doesn't, and it all kind of blows up. Yeah. Which is like, it's really not cool. But I just really, really identified with Jesse in this thing of like, it's that whole politics around like the school prom, ultra mm. hetero, ultra straight, like meet and court your opposite sex partner who you will yeah. then look back on photos with when you're both sitting on the porch with grandkids kind of thing. And we're yeah. going to start that at the age of 12. And like, I'm not, like, I'm not, gonna sort of put a thing on like saying that Jessie's queer because it's not there and she's 12 but as someone who is queer just kind of so identified with the like the huge headache Mm -hmm. of like navigating all of that before you even because like you don't realize it at the time because it's so ubiquitous and then you look back on it later and go oh my god it was just this whole culture that I was locked out of yeah. And I think there's a bit of that for Jesse that like Issa's friend is there who's like proper into sort of fashion and all of this and like dressing them up and she realizes she's losing her twin and she's yeah. like, Oh, we're not into the same stuff anymore. That was a pang for me. Mm. I was like, I get it. When the boy asks her if she thinks that Issa might like to go with him, it never occurs to Jesse that Issa would. Yeah. Because it sounds so unappealing to her. She's like Yeah. Would Issa want that? Like, of course she wouldn't. And she says it in this really cutting way to the boy as well. The boy feels really rejected. Yeah, it is brutal. Like, yeah. she breaks his heart. And yeah. she's just like, okay, cool, bye then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the pastries. I love Jessie. <laughs> but yeah, and then she's... Oh, then she comes home and then Issa's friend Allegra and Issa are trying on dresses at home and talking about eighth grade dance and Allegra's got a boy to ask her and she's going she's really excited and Issa's sort of looking really dreamy about it like oh it would be nice to go and oh it would be nice to dress up I would actually quite like that and Allegra's immediately like do you want me to ask my boyfriend if he knows any boys to ask you like it has to be a boy like there's no question that like you could go as a friend or you could go with a girl like an older boy has to ask this 12-year-old to the dance or she can't go. Yeah. Like, it's so much heteronormative pressure right from the off. Yeah. But Jessie's looking at Issa and she's like, how are you into this? But you are. Yeah. You, uh, you would actually quite, oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to have to 
tell you about Benny. Uh... <laughs> I want to read a bit of their argument when it finally comes to a head because I think it's brilliant and I think we might not have a twin story for January. We might be coming to our current... The end of our batch of twins. Yeah. And I, I think this, for like an interaction between them, is amazingly written. I am not you, Issa yelled. We are not the same person. Tears ran down Issa's face. Jessie was a statue, unable to move or say a word. Issa's voice lowered. I want you to leave me alone. Don't speak to me. Don't speak for me. Don't make decisions for me. Don't talk to other people about me. Got it? Mm. And I was just like, oh, that's amazing. Mm. I guess mm. right at the heart of it, right, is that like, Jesse's still into the enmeshment twin thing. We have to always yeah. go through the same things at the same time. And yeah. Issa's like differentiation, like we are not the same person. Yeah. I thought mm. that was amazing. And I thought that was the realist bit of like twin interaction that we've read so far. Yeah, totally. But then as well, it's just like, and I, it's a bit clumsy to put this on again, but Jesse's completely in the wrong. But the advantage that Issa has is just that overhanging, invisible, or pervasive advantage of she fits the right sort yeah. of culture and she wants the right sort of things. Yeah. And yeah. Jesse's left behind in that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was really strong. And I love the that that art throughout between them two, their relationship and them sort of working it out. Um yeah. and I love how the family deals with their conflict as well. Yeah. It's pretty bold, right? Because like it's set up right from the beginning that they're cooking Christmas Eve dinner because since they turned twelve, they cook Tuesday night dinner and this year Christmas Eve is a Tuesday. Yeah. <clears throat> and Oliver and like even the dad have been like Maybe they should not. And they're both like, what are you on about? Like, we can cook. And the mum's like, okay, cool. You cook. It's got to be good. And then this all blows up and they have to cook. And I think the like the mum comes through and is just like, so we can all see that you're working some things out. Um, there are 12 people relying on you for dinner. So that's got to happen. Like, do we need to find a plan B? Yeah. And they're like, no, we can do it. And then they're like, cool, so we're all going to leave the house. We're going to take all the other kids with us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the bit that I was like, it is brilliant when you think about it. But it's like, that's a bold move, man. <laughs> that's not the bit I wanted to talk about, though. I wanted to talk about the no. immediate aftermath where Issa kicks Jesse out of their room. Yeah. And they're both sleeping by themselves for the first time in their life. And each one has some members of the family go and sleep with her. Everyone rallies around Jesse, which I thought was really great. I thought that was great because Issa is like dealing with her stuff and Jesse yeah. is clearly the one that needs support. Yeah, so dad and the dog go and sleep in the living room with her. Yeah, and then Issa goes through to the mum's room Yeah, and she just like lies in bed and is like, everything hurts. And mum's yeah. like, yeah, I know. Well, should we do Scaryometer? This is going to be pretty quick because this book is not scary. It's not scary, no. It's, I mean, it's got a couple of scary moments... And there are stakes, yeah. but you're wreathed in a sense of safety of the Van der Beeker family. Like, even if they do lose the flat and have to go to Artenville, yeah. they're still all going to be together. It's going to be sad, but they'll be all right. You know, like, there's this fundamental sense of safety that comes from the family unit, I think, yeah. that, like, even though things may be hard and bad things may happen, you're not really in fear for anybody's life. The scariest it probably gets is Hyacinth going up to see the Biederman. Yes. In that way, it's very appropriate. Um, so are we saying like a one, do we think? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lovely, safe Christmas book. Yeah. You're not going to frighten anyone. And who are we saying it's for? Kids having to move home. Um, kids in a new home. Um, kids with a lot of siblings. Yeah. Kids who really would like to have a lot of siblings. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of people reading this book to children as young as six, and that being all right. Yeah. But I think it goes right up to, I guess, the age of the twins, which is 12. Yeah. There's something for kids of various ages to see themselves in. Yeah, that's the advantage of having five main characters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, are we ready to move on to Mog? Yeah, let's do that. 
I'm excited to talk about Mog. Well, would you like to summarise for us? Then? Okay, so this is Mog's Christmas by Judith Carr. So I grew up with Mog. We had a lot of Mog books around when I was little, and I absolutely love her. There's a format to a Mog book, and it goes like this. <laughs> Mog wakes up, something happens which makes Mog grumpy. Yeah. Mog says, I'm going out, and Mog goes out. Yeah. And then, coincidentally, in a completely self-interested way, she accidentally does something altruistic. And then everybody praises Mog, and then Mog gets an egg for her breakfast (laughs) the next day. The end. This is how they almost all go. She doesn't get an egg in this one. She gets Christmas presents. But otherwise, the formula works. And, And there are some optional passages, so quite often... It's like it's a religious text. (laughs) <laughs> quite often there's a lovely dream sequence in the middle yeah and it's usually mog dreaming positively about something that's actually negatively affecting her yeah we've got that in this one yeah 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 <laughs> so they are super formulaic in the best way yeah in that like i find them very soothing because of this it's in the same way as i think a lot of people really like to read a romance novel because Whatever happens, like, about halfway through, they're going to have a conflict. About three quarters of the way through, they're going to reunite. And at the end, there's going to be a happily ever after. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's nice. I think, like, people are really down on, like, formulaic fiction. But it is extremely soothing. It's a very accurate depiction of a cat as well. Yes. That is the other really appealing thing about Mog. Yeah. Is that she's just a grumpy little cat. Very self-interested. Uh, the the cat that we have in this house at the minute is is very much a mog. Yeah. Like can't help but love her, even though she she pretends to care about some of us. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I haven't given you a rundown of the plot. So as per the formula, Mog wakes up and she's not happy about it. So Mog wakes up. And the house is all in disarray. Things are not happening the way they should normally happen. This is another thing. is like cats and Mog are small C conservatives. They do not like things to change. So everybody is doing activities that they're not normally doing. People are decorating. People are baking. People are doing things that make them too busy to play with her. Yeah. Um, And also there are extra people in the house and she's not really happy about that. One of them is too loud. The other one's too quiet. Everything is wrong with the world. And then Mog decides, I'm going out. And she goes and sits on the windowsill and looks in at everybody resentfully. That is also another beat of every Mog book, is Mog sitting on the windowsill looking in resentfully. That way that cats stare at you where you're like, what do yeah. you want? Do you want attention? Do you want to be left alone? And they're just looking at you like, why are you in my immediate vicinity? Yeah. And I'm going to read this bit out. Suddenly she woke up. She saw something. (laughs) It was a tree. It was a tree walking. Mog thought, trees don't walk. Trees should stay in one place. Once trees start walking about, anything might happen. She ran up the side of the house in case the tree should come and get her. Come down, shouted the tree. (laughs) Come down, Mog. First it walked, thought Mog, and now it's shouting at me. I do not like that tree at all. And she ran right up to the roof. I love it. And then the pic- the picture we have is um, is the dad carrying the tree, right? Right. The words tell you one thing. Yeah. And the pictures tell you the real story. So the words are entirely in Mog's point of view, but you can see as the young listener to the story who's sitting in someone's lap having this read to you that the tree is actually being carried by Mr. Thomas, the dad of the family. And it's Mr. Thomas yeah. saying, come down, Mog. Yeah, yeah. And this is like a classic Mog thing, is that you always have more of the story in the pictures than you do in the words. Which means that the child in the lap is actually always a little bit ahead of the adult reading. Yeah. Which gives this like huge sense of power and empowerment to the child being read to. Is that you know what's really up. The adult's just reading the words and the words are slightly different or slightly wrong or slightly don't capture the whole picture. But you, as the child, can read the whole story just from the pictures. And I think that's one of the things that makes Mog so brilliant. Yeah. It's like how a good comedy set works, isn't it? Mm. That you structure it and set it up that, for the most part, someone's gonna, that, like the audience is going to get 
get there just ahead of you. Yeah, yeah, to build the anticipation. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I just, I love that. It's so, again, that is so cat as well. And that they're so, yeah. what, like one of my favourite things that cats do, if you catch it every now and again, because, you know, they're so self-possessed and they're so like sleek and like, um, confident and like cats, and cats always land on their feet is what people say right yeah. just shrug everything off yeah. every now and again you'll see a cat absolutely stack it right they'll go for a jump <laughs> miss fall off like bang their head stand up and then without fail every time they will look over their shoulders like did anyone see <laughs> <laughs> and then if you are there and they catch you they'll look at you and sort of stare at you and freeze and then sort of do this little like Kind of like shrug whatever and then start like licking them. I wish this podcast was video just yeah. for this moment, <laughs> listeners. You... Matt is embodying the spirit of cat in a very sleek and elegant way. I love it. I love it so much. It's like, oh my God, I've been caught out. And then like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. Like, <laughs> I meant to do that. Obviously, I meant to do that. <laughs> but it's that sort of immediate logic of like, why is that thing that I can see that is always still suddenly walking towards me? It can talk as well. The world is ending. I must get to the roof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mog is incredibly self-involved. Yeah. Um, so she goes up to the roof and she has a little sulk, um, which is also a classic beat of a Mog book, is Mog having a sulk. Yeah. Um, and everybody in the house is sad. Everybody misses Mog. The yeah. children are worried about her. What if she misses her supper? Yeah. But Mog won't come down. Yeah, they take a supper up to the roof, right? Like they get a la- and they, again, this is a very cat thing: is that you suddenly find yourself going miles out of your way. <laughs> like they get a ladder up to the roof to give her a fish, and she's like, "No, I don't want it." <laughs> <laughs> so then Mog goes to sleep on the chimney pot. Yeah, which is a nice warm place. Yeah, and then Mog has a lovely dream. Yeah. And that is always the exact wording in the books as well. Mog had a lovely dream. Yeah. And it's little white fluffy things falling from the sky well, it's in mice. the picture. Yeah. It's mice, but it just says little white fluffy things. Yeah, because it's been snowing. So all the yeah. all the white things are landing on her and they're cold and nasty. And then she falls asleep and it's still little white things falling from the sky. But she's like juggling mice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then the the snow that's underneath her melts. Yeah, this is another one that's great as well, and to, because like you're, you know that that's going to happen. A good two illustrations ahead, it sets that up so yeah. well. It's like, oh, yeah. Mark just settled in a nice, warm, in a nice tall place, yeah. um, and she, in her dream, she's on a cloud, and then the cloud starts to melt, and then the yeah. next picture is inside, and it's someone sweeping the ashes out of the chimney. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> So as the child, you know what's happening. But as the characters in the story, they don't know. And they're like, what's that big clanging noise in the chimney? Yeah. <laughs> One of the aunts goes, is it Father Christmas? This is the lovely yeah. bit. The cat falls out. One of the yeah. aunts goes, oh, it's Father Christmas. And the other one goes, no, don't be silly. Father Christmas doesn't have a tail. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the way you can tell. <laughs> no other clues. Yeah. So then Mog has to have a bath. Yeah. And she doesn't like this. And the illustration of Mog having a bath again is brilliant. Mm. She's enduring it. She's standing still the, in the washing up bowl. The little slant um, eyes, just like. But she's so angry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the eyes in this throughout are amazing. Yeah. Like, because yeah. sometimes that little slant eyed thing, and sometimes, like, the way her eyes are drawn, she just looks like, like stupid, but like happy. Yeah. Like she, yeah. like the last picture when she's getting held and cuddled and her eyes are just perfectly round with little dots yeah. in the middle and she's smiling and it's just this like placid, vacant light. Yeah. <laughs> but they're all faces that cats do. Yeah. So she has to have a bath and that's not great. But then everything was lovely. The tree had made itself all pretty and stopped moving and stood in the corner. That's so my that second right. favourite line. I love that. Yeah. The tree had made itself pretty. <laughs> <laughs> it had started like so enough of this silly carry on tree. That's better. At least you dressed up for dinner. <laughs> Much and then better. she gets some presents and everybody's happy and it's the end. So that is the story of Mog's Christmas. I love it. It's um Yeah. It's a really well structured jokes. Really yeah. well structured storytelling. Lovely pictures. Like 
hand drawn, hand coloured sort of yeah um, pencil drawings. Yeah, and I think a bit of watercolour as well. Yeah, sometimes like the night sky is definitely watercoloured, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I like the interiors a lot. Like you can see the Thomas family's decor, yeah. um, which dates it a little bit. Um, like you can see their wallpaper and like the patterns on their curtains. Yeah. Um, and you can see that they're it's a terraced house. It's very English. Yeah. They're very English these books and like how the town looks and how the houses look. Um, you can see the posty going down the, in the in the big drawing of Mog sitting on the windowsill looking narked yeah. behind her. You can see the posty just walking down the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On his yeah. rounds, it's it's extremely domestic in I guess a similar way to the Vanderbeekers in that it's also kind of slightly aspirational middle class big family Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you would like to be in that family. You would like to have a cat called Mog. Look at this picture. Uh, this is Mog reacting to the Christmas tree. She's showing her bum hole to everyone behind yeah. her, which is also a thing cats do. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. I think um, I, I, it makes a lot of sense that Mog is based on a real cat because it was Judith yeah. Kerr's actual cat, right, that she yeah. wrote the Mog stories about. The writing in the Mog books is so good. Um and the art style is really recognisably Judith Carr. I mean, she did other books. She did lots of other books. Um, but Mog is like her... Well, that and The Tiger Who Came to Tea. Yeah. Um, like, you will recognise this style. Who's this picture book format? Um, cat lovers. Cat yeah. owners. This is suitable for really young children. Yeah, definitely. Really young. Yeah, yeah. Like you could, I mean, so you can start with the Mog board books when your baby is a baby and they would maybe rip a book like this. Yeah. But, like, just post the ripping stage. Yeah. You could start with the full-size Mogs. You know, the stories are really simple. Um, they're always really funny and the drawings are always really funny. Yeah. Um, and they're satisfying to read, especially if you know and love a cat. Yeah. But even if you don't. Uh, so that was episode 25 of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks for listening. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid... Or love now as a kid. Let us know, or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod and on Instagram at eventhetrunchbull. Music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone, because we've all been kids. Even, Even the Trunchbull.